0: We've been looking at this series of of just different theological topics and then asking the question, well, how then shall we live if this is true? Since this is true, how should we live differently because of it? Since God declares himself in the scriptures, how then shall we live? Since God's creator And God has created all things, visible things and the invisible realities of our world. How should we live? Uh, Since the fall of man and sin and the corruption of this world is real, how then shall we live? God's active in our world. How How does that change how we live? We looked at that God is a redeeming God. Yes, this world is horribly broken and corrupted, yet... He is at work redeeming and making all things new. How does that change how we live? And so we've looked at a couple weeks of the idea of redemption, uh, and, but today I want to look at uh, kind of a, a unique way at looking at redemption, and that is through the lens of the covenant family. Now, uh, when we start talking about things that are corrupted in this world and things that need to change and all that, we we can tend to think about social issues. We can tend to think about stuff going on in our own personal hearts uh, and all of that. But I want to put right in the middle of all of that the family, the family that God has established, and he calls it the covenant family. Because uh, this is one of those topics that uh, is totally needful for us as God's people, but absolutely needed in our culture as well. Now, a few caveats before we dive into that. Uh, You know, this is one of those topics that God sets out as his design for this world. You know, he embeds marriage and family in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. Before the fall, this was the embedded kind of structure of how humanity would work. But yet, after Genesis 3, we feel the effects of it not working that way, right? We Some of us grew up in homes that were not homes that we would set as, man, let's emulate this. Some of us might be in the midst of brokenness right now in marriage or, or with family or kids or, or any number of ways. It's like God's design is here, yet, wow, my experience has been this, And so this is one of those potential topics that could often lead to uh, uh, maybe maybe us actually grieving a bit or maybe even mourning a bit of what we've experienced or what we are experiencing. Yet the, the, the thing that we should not do is avoid speaking on God's design. Okay, So I want to fully grant that we're going to probably all grieve in some way as we look at God's design because our life doesn't match it in all the ways that it should. Yet God says this is his design for this world and how does it then function in the midst of a corrupted world even as we grieve what is lost but then we are overwhelmed with hope because God is a redeeming God making all things new. You know, you think of marriages that are on the brink of breaking, and yet God comes in and does some restorative, miraculous work of saving that. And you're like, wow, that marriage is beautiful in a way that was unlike before it was really on the rocks, right? That that God's redemption changes the way we see things. Now, in the middle of the brokenness and the corruption, it's very difficult. And so we're going to kind of dive into that, but we're not going to shy away from what God establishes as very good in the fabric of creation. Does that make sense? Uh, And so why don't we do that? Why don't we uh, begin to look at the covenant family? And We're going to look and start with Psalm 78. So would you stand as we just express our submission to the Word of God? God speaks, and we long to hear from Him. So Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known and that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a new law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children— that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And they, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we need your grace, uh, and if uh, as a dad, as a husband, as a son, uh, uh, Father, it is um, just, there's so many different ways I need your healing grace to enter into my own life, into my family, and Father, I'm sure the same is true for everybody in this room. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear uh, just how you have um, established a beautiful design in this world that's through the structure of a relationship. Yet, God, I pray that you would meet us in all the ways that we kind of struggle with this concept, either from experiencing broken things, maybe those longing to be married, that, uh, but yet you still have them in the place of singleness— Father, those who long for children, yet you have not brought them in uh, to their family yet. God, would you meet us in all of those different things? And would you be God? Would you speak mightily over us? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So it's interesting that Todd gave the students, our high school students, the book Radical okay? Uh, The book Radical, because it's really easy to make the radical decision to follow the Lord and make radical things look really in the most rewarding and the most powerful. The idea of Radical, another book that came out about the same time, was Crazy Love, right? You may have read that one by Francis Chan. These are great books, and I would say absolutely needed to bring the church, God's people, out of complacency. And why would you give that book, Radical, to a high school senior as they go to college? Is because they will be inundated in ways that will kind of uh, potentially uh, just tamp down their love and their fervor for the Lord. And so what is it to be brought out of that and into a sense of truly following the Lord? Now, I would define radical being taking up G- taking up your cross and following Jesus. That's radical. Cuz radical says be sa- or normal says be safe. Normal says do whatever you can to keep your head down and just make life work out for you. Jesus says radical is put your will on the sidelines and follow me in my kingdom. But yet we tend to take that word radical and say because I need to be radical I've got to do the craziest thing possible in order to follow the Lord, okay? I need to sell everything and move to a different country. Now, some people do that, but if it is following God and His, and his leading, go for it. But it is, if it is you saying, you know what, I just need to be bold and radical and whatever that looks like, I'm going after it, I think that's the misnomer of what that word would lead us to. Because words like radical or crazy love or those things, they're dangerous if that's the only lens that we view the life of faith through. They're needed to get us out of complacency, but they're dangerous if we say, you know what, we got to be radical on the edge every day, every minute of our life. Lives, because then we will say that the day to day stuff that we do doesn't have much value. It's just laundry. It's just driving the kids to school. It's just sitting on the couch watching a game with my son or my daughter. It's just going to an event with my kids. It's just taking taking time and getting coffee with my wife. Those things aren't really all that important. The important stuff is the crazy radical stuff. So you hear the the blessing of the message getting us out of complacency, but you can also hear the danger of the message that it negates everything day to day. Like, that's just mundane, pointless stuff until you get to really important things. Growing faith, I would submit, is like a garden, okay? Okay. Uh, I often think this because we're the, we're the family that lets weeds grow up and lots of problems end up in our flower beds. And then you go out and you have to like knock it out for like eight hours one day. And, uh, and so while you recommend that, just let something overgrow in your life and then just go out there and weed it you will understand more about your life of faith than probably a year's worth of kind of study because you'll see how roots grow and then you pull one and they multiplied, and then this root over here all of a sudden has a... And you start to understand these things, but it's also you understand the pace at which gardens and plants and sustainable beauty really grows right? That growing faith is like growing a garden. It's rarely fast. And anything that grows quickly will fade away just as quickly as it appeared, right? And our fascination, though, with radical or with the big keeps us from much of what we are called to pursue before God. Yes, come out of complacency, but God is found in the little things, And the crazy things, but God is found in the ordinary. God is found in the mundane. This is true for the ministry of a church, and this is true for a family. So one writer, Michael Horton, uh, in thinking through this, he said that this has been the vicious cycle of evangelical revivalism. Evangelical being churches that uh, profess Jesus. The regular preaching of Christ from all the scriptures— baptism, the supper, meaning communion, and the prayers of confession and praise, and all the other aspects of ordinary Christian fellowship, you can relate to these last few words, those are seen as too ordinary. What does this look like? We take a step back. What are we doing as a church? And it's asked with discontent. Well, we preach we do baptisms, we do the supper, we pray, we confess, uh, we, we encourage fellowship. We do all, Yeah, but what are we really doing? Have you ever thought down that road or felt that in any way? Because those things have, have somehow become ordinary, mundane, and as if they're not as value as the, the thing we could be doing or ought to be. Horton goes on, we've forgotten that God showers his extraordinary gifts through ordinary means of grace, loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers, that's people, and sends us into the world to love and to serve others in ordinary callings. So yes, God calls us to be radical out of complacency, but I want to submit to you, God is calling you to be mundane and to be ordinary to the glory of God. Because our world hates ordinary, our world hates mundane, and that's why we struggle to see value in things that don't blip on the screen. It's only the stuff that we can kind of write about in the newspaper. That's the really important stuff. But if you think about it, if growing faith is like growing a garden, there's not too much noteworthy after putting the seed in the ground. You really just sit there and wait. You know, we we plant some plants, and even the ones that are already seeded, you put them in the ground, and you kind of walk over to them, and you just hope they actually bloom that day. Or like, oh, here's one coming, and you have to wait a week. Spiritual growth is like an incubator, and yet... We are enamored with the radical. Isn't it the family, though, that shapes futures and raises up men and women more than anything else in the world? The answer is yes, it is. But the family's so ordinary, it's so mundane, it's not really all that exciting. Yet God embedded it in creation as his primary vehicle of discipleship genesis 1 and 2 and yet what are we doing as a church let's raise families that love the lord so the importance of the covenant family we're going to come back to that word covenant in a second but it's basically that this is huge in the idea of how god is redeeming the world Yes, we're going to be involved in social causes. We're going to pursue broken people. We're going to pursue our own brokenness in our heart. We're going to push back temptation. We're going to see God heal when we fall into sin. We're going to see all of those things, but God's going to use the family to redeem the world. So in Psalm 78, as we read earlier, so this is God, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that, have, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children or from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and his wonders that he has done. Basically, one generation hears and knows the things of God and they tell the next generation not exactly earth-shattering, but that's how God is proposing that God's families will change the world. uh, uh, Chapter 78, verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Those are just historically ways that God speaks of his people, Jacob and Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. So here we are, teach their children the things of God. We're going to jump over to Deuteronomy 6. We'll get back there in a second. This is where God is uh, kind of telling his people how to, we're going to be back and forth between these two, if you're wondering. So Deuteronomy 6, he's telling his people these very same things before they go into the promised land. Uh, do these things. Hear my commandments uh, and tell them so that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. What do you hear there? Again, A father telling his son, whose son is going to tell his sons, and it just keeps going on and on. That generations will tell generations, which will tell generations of the goodness of God, but that they might not just know about God, but that they would fear the Lord, that they would bow their knee to the Lord, they would surrender their heart to the Lord. Again, you can't pass on to your kids what you don't do yourself. And so part of God using the family is moms and dads, grandparents, surrendering their lives in such an evident manner that kids see it. Not just hear it, but they see it, and they themselves are willing to fear the Lord as well. They understand the blessings of surrendering themselves to him. That's on the positive side. The negative side, Psalm 78 picks up in verse 8. Okay, Do all these things. Tell the next generation. Why? Why do we tell the next generation? That, so that they should not be like their fathers. <laughs> a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, fathers being kind of the forefathers, the generations that have come. So we tell these things to our kids so that they themselves don't become stubborn and rebellious against the Lord God, that they're not faithful, that, uh, that basically to do whatever they want, what is right in their own eyes, the fear of the Lord needs to fall on God's people We need to hear the words of the Lord and then tell them to the next generation. So the importance of this covenant family is to raise up that next generation and actually encourage them that they would have a heart for the next generation. So to tell our kids to have a heart for their kids. You know, it's hard enough to tell students to have a heart for next month, right? let alone next year or, or, you know, if they're in high school, college, middle school, college, now we're going to hopefully instill a desire that they would raise their kids to know the Lord and to fear Him. That's a work of God. But what's interesting is that this view of family and children stood in complete contrast to the world around God's people. So, as we enter into the New Testament era, so, you know, kind of like 200 BC and in through, uh, you know, in through the, the life of Christ and into kind of uh, two and the early parts of 300 AD, the Greek and Roman world had a very different view of family than the biblical picture. Everett Ferguson, kind of a church historian and, and writing on the backgrounds of Christianity. He said this about children. Hear how stark it is against what God is calling his people to do. And then even how the modern view of children is completely different. So this was the the view of children at the time coming into the time of Christ. That children were regarded as important only for the security of the community and of their parents. So children were a means to an end which is safety. The Romans viewed children as particularly vulnerable, physically and mentally weak. And puberty was commonly regarded as bringing not only physical changes, but also the ability to reason, (laughs) where modern parents tend to draw the opposite conclusion about adolescence. I appreciate Ferguson's comment there. Anyway, that the ancient world, beginning actually in 230 BC, was typically a one child family because they couldn't afford all, uh, to feed all of the mouths of, of multiple children. There were simply too many mouths to feed, and there was sometimes a desire for two sons in case one of them died. Again, it was all about the security of the parents, not the children. The answer to overpopulation was infanticide. Abortions were often attempted, but not, uh, but quite frequently were fatal to the mother, and they were made illegal under one of the emperors in 200 AD because of all of those failed attempts. It wasn't a moral decision. More frequently was the exposure of a newborn child. The unwanted child... "...was simply left to die on a trash heap or some other isolated place. Sometimes slave traders would come by and take the child and rear them in slavery. Girl babies might be taken and reared for a life of prostitution." And like modern questions of when human life is a person and entitled to protection under the law, for Greeks and Romans of this time, the newborn child was not considered a part of the family until acknowledged by the father as a child and received into the family in a religious ceremony. Thus, they did not, they did not consider exposure of a child murder but refusal to admit that child to society. That's the day and age that, God's, that Jesus broke into, number one, that God's people are living in. And what does God say? Is through the family, through dads and moms and grandparents teaching and training their children, they value their children. They're not a means to an end. Teach your to fear, children to fear the Lord. Teach your children your children, uh, to love the Lord, and in so doing, this world will be redeemed. So it was a culture shock. It wasn't cute when Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, because such belongs to them the kingdom of God. And all the adults said, how dare you? It was a culture shock. When Jesus says, unless you turn and become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It was culture shock when Jesus says that if you cause any of these little ones to, to, uh, Uh, to be uh, kind of misled or to sin. It's better for that person to have a millstone fastened around their neck and be drowned in the deep of the sea because God values children because he values the family and he's going to use the family to transform the world. But yet, when we go home tonight, we're going to say, all right, let's just get through this night so we can kind of sit down and watch some Netflix and chill and then uh, different connotation. But but. (laughs) <laughs> and, we're, and then we can uh, just get to the end of our day and not be tired at all. The importance of a family, but yet in that, God's plan of, net, uh, of uh, redemption through the family is here. God is going to redeem all things through the family so get this, we're going we're to race through some uh, different passages. What does God say to Adam? He says to Adam, uh, you probably won't have time to flip because I'm going to go pretty fast. Genesis 1, God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all of the earth. Basically, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then he comes to Noah in chapter 9. This is after the flood. And God blessed Noah and said, uh, or, and his sons, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same thing he said to Abraham. Then he comes, to, or, so same thing he said to Adam. He said to Noah. And now we get to Abraham in Genesis 13. He says, this is a guy who has no kids, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can actually count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Basically, you'll have more kids than dust on this planet is what he says to Abraham. That sounds like be fruitful and multiply. That sounds like the fulfillment of that. What does he say to Abraham later in Genesis 17? I will establish my covenant. Now, a covenant is a bond, a bond that God makes with blood with his people, a bond made with blood. So I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God not only pledges himself to Abraham, he pledges himself to Abraham his descendants. And even more magnificent than that, God promises to bless the entire world. How? Through Abraham's family. And this family and God's work in this family will be a blessing to the entire world. Genesis twelve three. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." That's Abraham. His son was Isaac. Guess what he said to Isaac? I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And guess what he said to Isaac's son, Jacob? Hopefully, you're following a pattern. That's really small. But for those who have really good eyesight, and behold, the Lord God above said, I'm the Lord of, and I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The land on which you will, I guess he's talking to Jacob, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac. On the land which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north and the south. And in you, all your offspring shall—and uh, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Did you hear the same promise? I'm going to make you—you're going to have a lot of offspring, and they're going to bless the entire world. All the families, all the nations, all the families again to Jacob. You're saying, well, that's Old Testament. Okay, There are no such things as Old Testament church and New Testament church. It's one church, God's people. Because at Pentecost, Peter preaches uh, for these people to repent, repent and embrace the gospel. Guess what he says to them? Same thing. For the promise is for you and for your children and, all who, and for all who are far off, everyone uh, from whom the Lord your God calls to himself to himself that this promise is not just abraham isaac jacob is now extending to the gentile world and then what does paul say to genesis 3 does this have anything to do with us absolutely genesis 3 verse 7 know then that that it is those of faith who are the sons of abraham basically saying not natural descent makes you a son of abraham if you have faith, you're a son of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, whoops, is it all up there? Yeah, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All that to say, if you have faith in Christ, you are downstream of the covenant promises that God has laid out where all the families of the earth will be blessed through his work in his people. said it to Abraham and his family, Isaac and his family, Jacob and his family, and Paul says if you have faith, you are now Abraham's descendants. All the nations, all the families of the world will be blessed through his people. The best discipleship tool that God has given his church is bringing children into your home. That is number one. There's a lot of curriculum at Lifeway Bookstore. None of it, all of it it in total, cannot touch the discipleship tool that God has established in creation. Bring a child into your home, love them, teach them, Live with them. Live before them uh, the means of grace. Live before them. When you fail, you need their forgiveness. When you are broken, you need God to raise you up. When you are afraid, you need God's help. And we live before our kids what a life of faith looks like. There is no better discipleship tool on the face of the planet. Is it automatic? Is it foolproof? No. David... King David was a man after God's own heart, and what did his sons try to do? Kill him. King Saul was rejected by God, and what did his son Jonathan do? He was was one of the best friends on the pages of Scripture willing to go uh, and uh, risk his own life for his friend David. So this isn't like a one-to-one relationship, but the, the overarching, overwhelming tool that God gives his people is in discipleship. And so the function of a covenant family, let me just submit to you the two passages because we're going to blitz this in about a minute. Psalm 78 and Deuteronomy 6. Read them. Ask God to uh, have that be a part of uh, your family. If you're a child in, in this that you, would be recipro- that you would be willing to receive what your parents are hoping to convey to you, and they're going to do it imperfectly. Don't blame them for that. Because they're imperfect sinners just like you. They're going to fail at this. It's not going to be seamless. And I think that's why they need a Heavenly Father just like you do. And that's the point. They get to display to you What a broken sinner does when we are broken, we go to the living God. Psalm 78, listen and incline your ears. Listen to what God has done. See and listen to the glorious deeds of the Lord. Our fathers told us we don't hide them from our children. We tell them to the coming generation. He commanded our fathers that we would teach our kids, children yet unborn praying for that next generation, having an eye towards generations to come. And why? So that they might know God and they might not become stubborn and rebellious people. Listen intently. Know the Lord. Tell your kids. And I love in Deuteronomy 6 when God says, this is who I am. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then he gives an instruction. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So it's not just hear it and tell about it. It's got to be something that transforms your heart. If it doesn't, stop there and ask God to do something miraculous in there. These words of community shall be on your heart. You shall then teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, which is like a headband with a box. Uh, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What is God saying? teach these things diligently, talk about them when, when you sit down, when you walk or walk along for our version, when we drive, when we lie down to tell our kids good night, when we wake up, we wear these things, things around, we write these things on our wall. It's not difficult, but it's got to be intentional. And it's very, very challenging to sustain, and that's why it's the power of the living God that actually allows us to fulfill that verse down in verse 8 and 9, that in you all the nations will be blessed. As we live the ordinary, walking around, talking about, learning, listening, as we do that with our families, God is doing a redeeming work Of blessing all the nations on this earth. I actually can't connect that dot of what we're going to do this afternoon of just being together as a family to redeeming the world. I have no idea how that works, but God does. Because he says the ordinary mundane thing that you just cast off as unimportant has immense value when it is carried along by the power of the living God who is redeeming all things. There's nothing that's wasted. Nothing. And so the next time you want to say this is not important, God is saying, yes, it is, and it's beautiful, and I'm going to use it for my glory to be a blessing to all nations and all families. Let's pray. Uh, God, I ask that you would uh, take these things, that you would um, help us to kind of grapple with them, that you would help us in that. Uh, God, I pray that you would would challenge us in our thinking. Father, when we become lazy and just want to sit down and watch TV, when we just want to do our own thing, or we don't think what we're doing as a dad or a mom or a grandparent really matters, Father, when we're a child and we don't want to listen anymore, Father, meet us there. And in that, you would restore our families, and in that, you would restore the world. Father, thank you that you're with us, and I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.